Father, we worship you this morning. Lord, we praise you. Father, you are glorious, you are holy, you are perfect. Lord, you are mighty and righteous and wonderful. Father, you have taken us once dead in our sins and trespasses, Lord. Sacrifice your son for us that we might have life. That is why we praise you, Lord. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for showing grace on us, Lord, for having mercy on us. Lord, we pray that we would glorify you through the actions that in our lives, Lord. We pray that we would glorify you through the church. Lord, we pray that we would be glorified by this service this morning. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The title of this morning's message is A Holy Priesthood. When we are born again, when we profess Christ, we are no longer what we once were, but we are transformed by the power of God through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In the text this morning, Peter describes this new creation as a holy priesthood. Where we are in the text this morning, and spilling over into the next couple chapters, Peter is giving us instruction on how, on how one who belongs to Christ is to conduct themselves. What does that look like? What is the holy priesthood that he describes here? I'm sure you've heard it said before to flee from sin and to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm sure we can all kind of figure out what it means to flee from sin, but what does it really mean to walk in the Spirit? We know that when we come to Christ, we repent of our sins, and we place our faith in Him. But then what? As we grow and as we mature and are sanctified, we are called not only to flee from the sin, but also to walk in the Spirit. So what does it look like to walk in the Spirit, and how are we to be a holy priesthood? as Peter describes here in 1 Peter chapter 2. So this morning, Lord willing, we'll get some of these questions answered. We'll dive into God's holy word given to us through the vessel of the Apostle Peter, and hopefully we'll walk away with a better understanding of who we are in Christ and what that ought to look like. So just a little background to set the stage here before we dive into this morning's text. We're here today because I had started a series in 1 Peter when we were in Mexico last year, and I'm doing some prep to pick up on that when we return, so this is kind of where I left off. So obviously many of you weren't here for that, or if you were here and did here, it's been a long time. So I'm going to do a little recap of chapter 1 just to set the stage of where we are here. The book of 1 Peter was written somewhere between the years A.D. 62 or 64. So that would have been during the persecution of the Christians under Nero's reign. Peter's intent on writing the book of 1 Peter was to strengthen the believer in the midst of persecution and suffering, as well as to remind us of our hope and eternal glory through Christ. He also makes a very strong call to live holy lives, glorifying God through our daily lives and our love for one another. 
it gives us a lot of instruction on what that should look like and what it should not look like. So in the first chapter, Peter opens with his greetings and blessings and then praises the Lord for the inheritance that we all as believers share in Christ. He reminds us, the believer of the great blessing of this inheritance and encourages us to remain faithful and steadfast even under persecution. The reader, the audience this letter is intended to for, Peter is assuming that they are already saved, that they have heard and received the gospel, and now he is encouraging and directing them. So as we read this this morning, keep in mind that these are encouragements and admonishments. They're directed to those who already profess the faith, to the church, to the born-again Christian. Peter then shifts from encouragement under persecution to instruction on how one who is born again is supposed to walk, how we are to conduct ourselves as God's chosen people. He exhorts us to not be conformed to the desires of the flesh, but to be holy in our conduct. He instructs us to walk in reverence, to be obedient to the truth, to walk in brotherly love. He describes our time here on earth as us living here as strangers, encouraging us to shift our focus to eternal things. And as we get to the close of chapter 1, Peter reminds us again that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. Verses 24 and 25 read, For all flesh is like the grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. And that brings us up to this morning's text, starting with chapter 2, verse 1. So with this introduction, would you please stand with me if you are able, out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the words, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Says the word of the Lord, you may be seated. So there's quite a bit to take, take in here this morning. So we're going to do our best to take this verse by verse and not lose sight of the text as we go along. You will see Peter continues here over the next few chapters giving more direct instruction and encouragement to the believer. But for this morning, we're going to try to just focus on the first five verses here. The overall message that we're getting from Peter here this morning is, you have been eternally blessed. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You have been called out of the darkness and into the light. So let's act like it. If you're born again, if you have received the Holy Spirit, this is how you ought to act. This is how you ought to conduct yourself. This is what it should look like. God's word never changes. It never fades. 
Even though these words were written nearly 2,000 years ago, they are just as applicable now as they were then. And despite the differences in culture and society, we need to hear this just as much as the early believers did. You see, the problem is as believers, as we get older and more seasoned in the faith, we kind of lose sight of the basic principles of being a Christian. We have a tendency to outgrow the gospel, so to speak. The things that first drew us to the cross and to repentance kind of get stored in the back of our memory banks, and we tend to just get focused on new pursuits, more scholarly subjects that can provoke deep thought and intriguing debates. And there's not anything wrong with that. But we also need to be ever mindful of how we are to conduct ourselves, what it really looks like to walk in the Spirit. We need a refresher once in a while to be reminded and exhorted. And we see this in this morning's text. Although Peter is writing to a church that is under persecution from the government, he doesn't just focus on encouraging them or condemning the government that is persecuting them. In fact, later in verse 13, he instructs them to submit to this governing authority. So he's not just encouraging, he's also challenging them, exhorting them to walk differently than those around them, living as strangers and exiles in the land. So we open chapter 2 with, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infant, infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now let me just back up for a second and see what this therefore here is therefore. I'll back up to verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. We have been born again. We're a new creation. And not of perishable seed, but imperishable. The first time we were born, it was perishable seed, right? Everyone who is born on this planet is born into perishable seed. We all share that same fate initially. We are all on that same journey, the same walk to death. But for those who confess Christ, if we are born again, this second birth doesn't lead to death. It leads to eternal life. So because we are born again, we are seeing fruit here. We're seeing obedience to the truth. And notice the way Peter phrases it here. We would typically think that we are being purified by God so that we can be obedient, right? But I think there's a distinction between purify, like Peter says in the text, and sanctify. God sanctifies us in our walk and makes us more like Him. But Peter is saying here this morning that we are being purified by our obedience to the truth. It's taking an action on our part. It requires effort. We don't just confess Christ and then sit back and wait for the magic to happen. 
It takes an effort on our part. We need to study God's Word to know it and then obey it. Not only are we obedient to the truth, but we are also showing brotherly love for one another. And not just superficial love, but sacrificial love from a pure heart. We are loving one another as Christ commands us to love your neighbor as yourself. So we have been born again of imperishable seed. We are being purified by our obedience to the truth. We are loving one another as ourselves. Because everything around us is slowly withering and dying, yet the word of the Lord endures forever. Therefore, Peter says, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Therefore, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see the context here? Peter is saying, because you have been born again, not of something perishable, perishable, but something imperishable, because the word of God endures forever, rid yourselves of these things. Because you are being purified through your obedience to the truth in God's word, desire God's word. Desire that pure milk of God's word. So you can continue to grow in Christ. Let's take a look at Peter's list here of the things we are being told to rid ourselves of. Remembering here the intended audience. Peter isn't presenting the gospel to the unbeliever here in the text this morning. He is addressing those that already confess Christ. Which means that these are areas that if we're not careful, we're prone to fall into. So number one, malice. What does malice mean? Malice indicates a desire to harm or injure. It's the desire to see something bad happen to someone else. That's what's driving it here. It's, it's not the action of hurting someone. It's the intent that's behind it. If I left the parking lot here this morning and accidentally ran over your dog, that would be an accident. But if I'm upset with you and I'm leaving and I see your dog and I run him over intentionally because I know it's going to upset you, that's acting maliciously. Malice can also come out in the form of hurtful speech. The words that come out of our mouth reveal what's within our heart. We can say some pretty nasty and hurtful things to one another. And I've noticed particularly in the Christian community, malicious speech is given a pass if we just add a qualifier that it's a joke. As if we can make some terribly hurtful comments to someone, but then clarify that it was just a joke, and suddenly it no longer hurts. It's not funny. If I were to walk up to you and stomp on your foot, but then throw it out, just joking. It's not going to make it hurt any less. The truth of the matter here is that even if we are saying these things as a joke, it's revealing something else in our heart. It's revealing that seed of malice deep within us. And when it kind of spurts out, we think we can just kind of gloss over it by saying, that's oh, just a joke. Peter charges us here this morning is to really examine ourselves. Like really look deep, look and see if that malice is within you, and then rid yourself of it, flush it out. Number two, deceit. Deceit is causing another person to believe something is true that is actually false, right? We see the first case in act of deceit way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that was a lie, right? It was deceit. Satan deceived Eve into believing that what God said was false. What she knew to be true, the word of God that was spoken to her, he was able to deceive her into believing something else. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul's, Paul warns us not to be deceived. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying that you know this to be true. You know such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know that these acts are unrighteous. But it's a warning. Some will come and try to deceive you into believing that these things are okay. They will intentionally try to believe, get you to believe a lie instead of the truth that you already know through God's word. We even see this deception coming from within the church these days, don't we? Modern churches are deceiving the unrighteous trying to convince them that their sin is okay to keep them in the seats, to fill up the coffers. We aren't to deceive one another. Deceiving someone isn't always the big things either, like bringing original sin into the world. We can deceive one another in many ways. We can even try to deceive ourselves. Peter charges us here to rid ourselves of all deceit. Even if we think our intentions are good, there's no room for deceit within the body of Christ. Number three, hypocrisy. I think we all have a general understanding of what hypocrisy is, right? Normally you think of it as just saying one thing, but doing another. But listen to the Webster's 1828 dictionary definition of hypocrisy. Simulation, a feigning to be what one is not, or dissimulation, a concealment of one's real character and motives. More generally, hypocrisy is a simulation or the assuming of a false appearance of virtue or religion, a deceitful show of a good character in morals or religion, a counterfeiting of religion. It's a simulation. It's not real. What looks to be real is just an act. It's a sham, a counterfeit. It's a false appearance to be something you are not. Here we see deceit is tied in with this as well, going hand in hand with hypocrisy. It's intentionally causing those around you to believe a lie that you are one way, when behind the scenes you're a totally different person. So hypocrisy is not just saying one thing, but doing another. It's not just that the actions don't line up with what we're saying. It's the appearance of virtue. It's the deceit. It's the fake show we put on when we're in public to deceive people into believing that we're one way, when at home, we're a different person. Peter is telling us here to purge the hypocrisy from within us. As we grow and mature in Christ, we should rid ourselves of hypocrisy. We should be transparent. 
We should act the same way Sunday mornings here at church as we do Friday nights all with our friends. Number four, envy. Here's another one. I'm going to go back to the Webster 1828 definition as I feel it's kind of lost meaning over the years. So the definition in the Webster's 1828 dictionary says, to feel uneasiness, mortification, or discontent at the sight of superior excellence, reputation, or happiness being enjoyed by another, to repine at another's prosperity, to fret or grieve oneself at the real or supposed superiority of another, and to hate them on that account. It's not just, I want what that person has. It's not that simple. It's the feeling uneasy, the feeling discontent when comparing yourself to another. And it's not just material things. We can be envious over another person's reputation or even happiness. It says to repine at another, another's prosperity. Repine means to feel discontent or to, to fret over. It says don't even feel discontent when you compare your prosperity to another's. Envy has a funny way of turning into hatred to you, right? What starts as just feelings of uneasiness over someone else's reputation or happiness or success, it ends up morphing into something else over time. And that's what Peter is trying to warn us of here. It's very easy for envy to simmer beneath the surface within the church. It's easy for it to go unchecked because it brews beneath the surface within the heart. And if you notice in your brother envy coming out in their talk or their actions, typically by that point, it's already started to morph into something else. Almost like a dislike of another person, not because they have wronged you in any way, but because you're envious. The challenge here is to really examine the heart and keep these feelings in check when you start to notice them inside yourself. It takes a lot of self-discipline and self-examination. It takes being honest with yourself. It also means being content with what the Lord has blessed you with and rejoicing with others when they are blessed. Number five, slander. Slander is misrepresentations or false charges which defame or damage another person's reputation. It's not only just a false statement or saying something deceitful about another person. It can be as subtle as a misrepresentation. Leading someone to believe something false about another person just by the way that you're presenting the facts. Again, it's the intent to deceive or defame or to hurt someone else. And sometimes this can even be maliciously. I just want to read a, a few Proverbs about slander. Proverbs 13.3 those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. Proverbs 18.7 the, the mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. 20.19 Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. 26.24 Enemies disguise themselves, themselves with their lips, but their hearts in their hearts they harbor deceit. 10.18, whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. 11.9, with his mouth the godless man will destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the, right, the righteous are delivered. 
It could go on and on, but I think we get the point here. Slander has no place within the body of Christ. And you can see it here that all of these tie together. They all feed off one another. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. They're all feeding one another. They all serve to corrupt our souls and our character. They not only harm those around us, but they eat away at us from the inside. And they're all things that are easily overlooked or unrecognized within ourselves or within the church if we're not diligently guarding against them. We are instructed in the text here this morning to purge ourselves of such things and then replace it. Replace it with what? Verse 2 this morning. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Get rid of all these things from within yourself. Get this out of your life. Make room for the word of God within you. Desire it. Long for it like a newborn longs for pure milk. The word of God is our substance. It's what feeds us. It's what nurtures us. Peter is telling us here this morning that we should crave the word of God. All these wicked things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, there's no room for them within our hearts if we're constantly filling ourselves with the word of God. Romans 12 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Keep your bodies pure, a living sacrifice, free of all these wicked things, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And how are we being transformed, and how is our mind being renewed? It's by constantly bathing it in the Word of God. Peter says this morning we are to do this so that we may grow up into salvation. You see the implication here? The continually being in the Word of God will cause us to grow up into our salvation and to be sanctified. I didn't touch anything. Then what happens is what happens if we are not? salvation. 
Verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's an if-then statement, church. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you are born again, then you will rid yourselves of these things. Then you will desire the word of God like the purest milk. And he's not expecting that we'll immediately all be there right out of the gate either. Remember, Peter is writing here to the church on the persecution. God's word here in the text is directed at the believer. The point is to look at these things, look for these things within you. Are they there? The implication is that they are there. We just haven't been looking hard enough to find them. We don't need to get offended or defensive, but rather find them within ourselves and then root them out. Rid ourselves of deceit. Rid ourselves of envy. And then fill ourselves with the Word of God. It says we are to desire the Word of God like infants desire pure milk. This doesn't happen overnight. In the flesh, we don't always want to just sit down and read the Word. We're distracted, we have other things going on, we have busy lives. But if we start examining ourselves, if we start cleaning house, so to speak, and we start spending more time in God's Word, we will desire it. You see, God will transform the desires of our heart as He sanctifies us, and we will long more for His Word. This is all vitally important to the church. The believer was never meant to be stagnant. We're meant to be sanctified, to be transformed, to be continually growing. Look at verses 4 and 5 here. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, at first, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture here and kind of get lost in this word salad, as Peter's using a lot of descriptive language here of the believer. So let's, let's break this down a little bit and see if we can make it a little easier to understand. So a living stone. Peter describes this as a living stone. It has a two-part meaning here. The first, it's a living stone. It's living, right? That's, that's not possible. Stones have no life. Stones do not have life. We see trees and grass and animals and even water, life, all around us. But a stone is dead. It never has any hope of being alive. It's dead. There's nothing in it which is what we once were. Apart from God, we had no hope of life either. But, once had, had, but what, what, what once had no hope, God has made alive. He has taken a hopeless stone and he breathed life into it through Christ's atonement for our sins. The second we see in Scripture the connection between Christ and a stone. Psalm 118.22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You'll see this scripture quoted over and over again throughout the New Testament. We hear this term a lot, and I think we kind of lose its meaning over time. The cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. As the first stone is laid, it becomes the reference point for all other stones laid subsequent to it. Everything finds its definition from this first stone. So Christ, in this analogy, as our cornerstone, he is the foundation of the foundation. 
the reference point for everything else. So this starts to make a little more sense now. So when Peter describes us here as living stones, he's making the analogy that we were once dead, lifeless stones. We have become alive. And we are to become like Christ, our cornerstone. He is to be our reference point for everything in our lives. And as living stones, we will be rejected by men, like Christ was. But we are chosen and honored by God. So we have the picture painted here of how Peter is describing us. And this text gets a little confusing because of Peter's description right in the middle of his statement. So I'm going to reread it for a second. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let me sum it up here without the descriptive language. As you come to him, you yourselves are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we zoom out further in this morning's text, if you are born again, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, rid yourselves of these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Desire the word of God like your life depends on it, so that you may grow up in your salvation. And as you do this, you come, as you come to him in this manner, you are being built up to be a holy priesthood. Wow, praise God, amen? amen. We go from a lifeless rock to a holy priesthood. You see, Peter isn't trying to beat up on us here this morning. He's trying to encourage us to look at the big picture. His exhortation, yes. But look at the fruit of obedience. We are transformed to a holy priesthood. Now, what does that mean? I've got a quote here from R.C. Sproul. I think it's a great way to, to summarize it. In the Old Testament, the basic function of the priest was to offer up sacrifices to God in keeping with the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. The sacrifices that the priests offered were physical sacrifices, animals, and grain offerings. We are of a different kind of priesthood, a spiritual priesthood, in which, in which each believer is called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And at the very heart of worship is the concept of offering up sacrifices. From the very beginning with Cain and Abel, God's people brought their offerings to God as a sacrifice. Paul wrote in Romans that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship or reasonable service. So the first way in which we function as a spiritual priest is by offering the sacrifice of praise to God, which that's what worship is. So our primary role, the primary role of us as a royal priesthood is to offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice and to praise God. And we're only able to do this through Jesus Christ. Us, once lifeless, worthless stones, have been made alive through Christ. And when we realize this, when we really understand that we weren't just good people, but we were enemies of God, dead in our sins and trespasses, when we humble ourselves and look at how utterly hopeless we are without God, when we really examine ourselves and see that 
there's still little bits of sin dwelling within us. We're going to look differently. We're going to act differently. We're going to sacrifice our flesh. We're going to give up our sins. We will praise God because He is holy and worthy of praise. We will continually look for those bad things within us, for that deep-rooted sin, and we'll flush it out. We're not going to turn a blind eye to it. We won't try to ignore or suppress conviction when we feel it. We won't get self-defensive. We'll actively examine ourselves and find those little dark things that are within us like envy or deceit and rid ourselves of them. We will continually bathe ourselves in the Word of God and nourish and feed our soul by His Word. We will offer up our lives, everything that we are, in service to the Kingdom. And we will worship the Lord, praising Him because He is worthy. This, this is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, Church. This is a holy priesthood. This is how we ought to act, if indeed we have tasted that the Lord is good. Let us praise Him again this morning, Church. Let's worship our Savior and King, for He has given us life, He has sacrificed His Son, so that we, once lifeless stones, may live and sing His praises eternally. We transition in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just repent this morning, Lord, of our sin, Lord, of our wickedness, of the constant battle we have with our flesh. Father, we repent that we haven't spent enough time in your word, Lord. Unless we're reading your word 24 hours a day, Lord, we can never get enough of it. Lord, we just praise you, Lord. We praise you because you are holy and worthy, Father. You have given us life. You have shown, shown mercy and grace on us, even though we didn't deserve it. You've sacrificed your son. Father, you are mighty and holy, Lord, and we praise you for that. Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning given, given to us through the vessel of the Apostle Peter, Lord, and that we would take it to heart, Lord. I pray that we would desire to be in your word, Father, that we would desire to do your will. We just pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.